Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The pandemic has interrupted a lot of sectors. Museums have been hit particularly hard, but it hasn't stopped them from sharing the work of artists. Coming up, where we live, we hear from the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut, to find out how it's engaging with the public and staying afloat during the pandemic. And we learn about the Simsbury Art Trail and the more than three dozen life-size sculptures the town is currently hosting. You can't miss them. First, have you seen murals at bus shelters around West Hartford? Joining us now to talk about them is one of the artists involved. Joining us on the phone is Trey Brooks. He's a fine artist from the greater Hartford area. He's among 10 artists commissioned by the West Hartford Art League to create bus shelter murals, part of the Art League's Art in Public Places program. Trey, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Trey, where you grew up and when you started to gravitate towards painting? Sure. So um, I grew up in Bloomfield, Connecticut. And uh, as for when I gravitated towards painting or art in general, uh, it was always kind of there. I was always the kid sort of doodling in class and, you know, just sort of drawing on walls with like crayon, (laughs) things like that. And it wasn't until I think like around when I got to college is when I decided to make that my career path Mm -hmm. officially. When you were doodling in class and drawing on walls, how did the adults around you respond? Yeah, they they really enjoy that. <laughs> they, yeah, they 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 love that. <laughs> no, really, Trey, did you get in trouble? <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I mean, as far as like the the walls were, yeah, it was like kind of a it was kind of a big no. But mm. you know, my mom was just like, you know, like. I, I should I could my mom it was so funny my mom was just like you know I should have known because you were pretty much doing this since like you were in the first grade so it's only natural. Mm. So you studied painting at the University of Hartford and you earned a bachelor's degree in fine art graduating uh, recently. Tell me about some of the themes that you explore in your work. Sure. So some of the themes I explore in my work has to do with uh, my family and my sense of identity, sort of where I come from, as well as uh, also dealing with certain traumas from my childhood, as well as generational traumas that sort of get passed down and they sort of spring up, you know, certain themes sort of spring up in my life. And so I kind of use art making as like my as like my sort of way of um, sort of dealing with that and also sort of, uh, I guess, just talking about it. Mm. So I mentioned this bus shelter project. When did you first hear about it? And tell us why you were drawn to it. Uh, I actually first heard about it. A good friend of mine uh, sent me, who's also an artist, uh, she sent me the the open call via email. And which was funny because at first I kind of dismissed it a little bit where I was just like, well, not really dismissed it, but I didn't pay too much attention. But then I think after a while I came back to it and I was sort of reading up on it. I was like, oh, this is actually really, this is actually right up my alley because um, 
I've always had such a strong interest in public art and sort of mural murals in general. So, and I've always, and I never really had the opportunity to sort of do that until recently. So I figured, you know, this would be a great, this would be a great way to finally, uh, do something along those lines. Mm. I understand that each artist received a stipend and the murals are about six feet high and nine and a half feet wide on plexiglass. So tell me mm. about your piece. Describe it for us. Sure. So my piece um, is, I basically did a, a whole sort of uh, portrait of like my family. is like a bunch of my different family members. It's like, Myself included, my great aunt, great uncle, cousins, aunts, things like that. I was I was actually working off of an old photograph um, that uh, that I found recently, and I just think that I just thought it would be perfect. Like I was I was just like this totally has to uh, be the sort of mural piece that I work on, and I think it turned out really well. Mm. So you based it off an old family portrait, I believe. We can see your mural on Farmington Avenue across from Bank of America in West Hartford. We're going to put up a picture of the mural on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. But because we're on the radio, Trey, could you describe the mural, the, the colors you used, and the words you included? Sure. So um, so I tend to, I'm very intuitive when it comes to art making. So I kind of use very, you know, diff, pretty much every color in like the spectrum. Uh, and you can sort, and you can see that uh, in on the mural, like if, if you get up close, where there's reds, greens, blues. You know, sort of. I sort of go by the old philosophy that one of my teachers used to say, which was, um, "Don't use colors that you see necessarily, but use colors that you think you see." So, like, if you think you see like a purple, or if you think you see a blue somewhere in like a someone's skin tone. Um, just put it there because that that feels more accurate versus trying to painstakingly uh, you know get like quote unquote accurate uh, pigmentation or accurate sort of color so that's pretty much uh, mm. what I did so like uh, you know it's all it's all this uh, different colors and then as far as the words um, up the top I have uh, Black Lives Matter you know, sort of like uh, written all across in a banner. And then I've also had other sort of um, words that I sort of put in the moment, like no justice, no peace, that's over in the top right corner. And then I think in the other top left, it's um, uh, it's not a movement, it's a revolution uh, in reference to Black Lives Matter. Mm. And then on one of the figures' shirts, I, again, in the moment, I decided to write out the names of different um, black men and women, specifically in the greater Hartford area that have been killed by police within the past uh, year or so. Mm. So just just as a way to sort of um, uh, mortalize them or sort of remember them. So, you know, I just put rest in peace and I listed out all the names. I understand you painted this at the end of August. So uh, we know that uh, these protests have been going on uh, 
or through the summer. They continue uh, even uh, now, especially as uh, the public reacts to the news out of uh, Louisville, Kentucky, a grand jury and not charging right. two officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor while she was sleeping in her apartment. And so when you um, make the point to write Black Lives Matter and to include the names of, of black men and women, uh, you say, that have been killed in Connecticut, uh, tell us why you feel that's important. I feel like it's just important for me just as a black person and as, especially like as an artist who, an artist of color who definitely believes that representation matters, especially accurate representation. So I think I believe is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I'm, my portraits mostly focus on family and people close to me. And just because I feel like that's, uh, to me, I just feel like that's important. Like I want to walk, I want to go into galleries and, you know, look at a portrait and know that that person, you know, looks like me, you know, has similar backgrounds, things of that nature. And especially during these times, I think representation is like the most important thing. For our listeners who want to see more of your work, Trey, they can go to your website, Trey brooksart.com and we'll uh, make sure we tweet that out um, at where we live. I was drawn to um, a series that you have on your website called Passed Down where uh, you're also exploring fabrics and thinking about your personal history. Can you describe that? Sure. So, um, yeah, it was part of a series that I've been sort of working on and still kind of, I still play around with fabric and textile, but um, it kind of I have a tendency to sort of work with different materials because uh, paint, for whatever reason, is never enough for me. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, so I started incorporating different fabrics and um, just as a means to sort of uh, explore more um, this idea of, you know, these certain materials or these certain objects that we sort of take for granted every day, but they actually hold like a lot of meaning, like, um, like a lot of the clothing that I used to wear, like we're actually just, you know, passed down from like, uh, you know, like uncles or like, uh, family members and just sort of, um, and just sort of using that. So in a way it's like, it has in a certain way, like that has personal meaning as well. You know, despite the fact that, oh, you know, it's just a shirt, but I was like, no, it's the shirt that, mm-hmm. uh, my uncle Delroy used to wear so like therefore it's special to me but like and I always feel the need to wear it or like uh, a shirt that my grandfather uh, wore whom I never met before because he passed away before I was born but I'm curious about the life that he lived and what he did during his time so like for me like that shirt almost becomes like a like a symbol or a relic of like the person that you know this person you know, I know this person or I'm like, I'm related to this person. So that's kind of where mm. that sort of series came from or sort of bred from. Uh, going back to your mural that you did for the West Hartford Art League based on this family portrait that you described, in your portrait, some of the figures have halos. Uh, can you describe that yeah. for us and, and why you decided to do that? Sure. So on the mural, uh, there's certain individuals that have halos, as you just described. Um, they're actually uh, family members that have passed away either recently or within the last couple of years. And um, I mostly did that just uh, as a way of uh, honor them. And 
immortalize them. And just as a reminder for me that, like, even though they're gone, it's like they're not really gone. Like, they're always with me and they're always, they're always a part of me, whether that, you know, whether that's spiritually or just in my genealogy, my DNA. It's like they're always, they're never truly gone. So that's just my way of um, honoring them. You mentioned your grandfather to us. Is he portrayed in this portrait? Uh, he is not, no. So when uh, my we... grandmother is. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, so like my grandmother, as well as my mother, is portrayed um, off to the side, mm-hmm. where uh, she, uh, my grandmother also has a halo above her, above her head, and then right next to her is like a portrait of my mother. Mm-hmm. Can I ask their, your family's reaction when they saw your mural? Uh, they loved it. Uh, I've had a couple of family members reach out to me and be like, oh my God, this is like so amazing. It's lovely. I'm so proud of you. So, um, which, I, which I like. Um, I'm glad that it makes them happy. And I'm glad that, uh, that they're represented in a dignified way and like in a way where it's, um, you know, they can, they can say, oh, my portrait is down in West Hartford. <laughs> So I think I think it's pretty cool. Mm. When we think of West Hartford, we think of many people think of it as a wealthy uh, town, um, and mm-hmm. while it is diverse in some parts, I'm just wondering what you think about having your mural there in a bus shelter in West Hartford. Picking up on what your family's reaction was. Sure, um, I think I honestly think it's great because um, I went to school in West Hartford and. Yeah, there was there was some diversity, but at the same time, there's still like that thing of West Hartford. Like West Hartford is always looked at as like sort of upper class, uh, sort of suburban white uh, culture. You know, not that there's anything wrong, inherently wrong with that, but it's just that there was never this sense of sort of uh, sort of like a recognition or like diversity in this sense. Like you said, it's like in certain parts. Mm-hmm. So. And again, going back to like representation, I think having that mural there is absolutely perfect because it just shows that, hey, you know, we're all, it's like we're all, we're all diversified. It's like, it's not, you know, we all represent this town. And especially after um, the protest in West, downtown West Hartford that I was a part of this past summer, I just felt I just the solidarity that I felt um, at that time and so many people coming out, you know, black and white, you know, just being like, you know, we need to stand together. Like we need to show that like uh, we're, we're much more diverse or we're much more inclusive or we should be more inclusive. So I think my hope is that this mural will be the, the sort of, benchmark for that. Mm. What's it like being an artist right now, Trey? Uh, not only when we think about the political climate, but uh, the fact that, you know, in this pandemic, so many things that we love to do um, have had to be curtailed. And when we think about supporting arts and visiting museums and having shows where people come and see your work, I mean, a lot of that has had to be suspended. What was it, has, what has it been like for you? Um. It's been very different. Like, it's like there's no other way to describe it. Um, just like I can't, I'm so used to all my downtime just going to different galleries and just um, 
and just making a habit to look at new work and try to discover new artists and network and all that stuff. And, you know, I don't really, and because of, you know, COVID, it's like, can't really do that. But, um, I think the beauty, weirdly enough, I think the beauty of being an artist is that despite all that, we still find ways to express ourselves and we still find ways to sort of work and, you know, just kind of working around this or sort of working with this chaos in a sense. And, it's something that I've become very aware of, so like even in my practice where I can't work the same way that I used to. So I'm just like, okay, let me make adjustments here and there. Let me, um, let me do some research. Let me just explore different ways of working. So I think, you know, in regards to, you know, COVID and just how being an artist uh, during this time, it's, like I said, it's different, but I think in my personal I guess me personally, I find a way to make it work, I guess. Mm. Uh, you're a young artist. Uh, again, we heard you describe uh, you like to doodle and draw from a, from the time that you were little, even if you were drawing in places that you weren't supposed to. You know, and when you right. think about yeah. how, as a community, um, people can support young artists, uh, what did you need growing up that, that you hope other young artists are getting today, Trey? Um, I think just a community like a, just a strong community of like-minded people and just like like-minded artists who kind of uplift each other. And that's something I think like is more, you know, it's more important than, you know, getting opportunities to do, you know, like a bus shelter mural or like uh, showing in a gallery. I just think it all kind of starts with getting a group together and just being like, Hey, let's, uh, let's get together and let's just talk about art or let's let's get together and have like a little critique group where we bring our work and we talk about it. I think that's where, that's where that starts. And then the hope is that it blossoms into something, into an even bigger community and just like this big network where we all have our back. So I think um, someone in my position is in like, we definitely, we definitely need that. And I definitely I strongly believe in that. Trey Brooks, again, is a fine artist from the greater Hartford area. He's among 10 artists commissioned by the West Hartford Art League to create bus shelter murals around the town. You can see a, a photo of his, of his mural at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And if you're driving through West Hartford, check out uh, the bus shelter at Farmington Avenue across from Bank of America. That's the one Trey did. Trey, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was very, it was very relaxed. <laughs> it was very, especially like I'm, I'm outside right now, and it's like it's, it's like quiet. It's like very serene. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Trey. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, do you miss going to museums? Have you looked forward to online artist talks or tours, online tours of exhibitions in the place that you like to visit? Coming up, we're going to hear from the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And you can join us, too. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Museum attendance has been affected by the pandemic, so how are small museums staying afloat? And what are the ways curators and directors are staying engaged with the community? Joining us now for some perspective on Zoom is Sabelle Malone. She's director of the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Sabelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, Sabelle, I understand that you've been director of the Aldridge since uh, 2018. What has it been like running a museum during a pandemic? It has been rather remarkable. Um, You know, one of the central things that we do as a museum is welcome people to our building to engage with works of art by contemporary artists. So um, when we closed the museum in mid-March, it, you know, um, it was a real shock to the system. It's not the kind of, it's a little bit of an existential threat um, or existential crisis, I should say, to close your doors, to take great exhibitions that we've worked hard on and lock them up. Um, But, you know, we reopened at the end of June. And I would say during the period of time that we were closed, um, everyone on our staff got incredibly creative about keeping how we could keep the life of the museum. And by that, I mean really supporting the work of artists and connecting that work with audiences, keeping that, um, keeping all of that alive, despite the fact that we needed to think about doing it with a really, really different set of tools, because again, the museum itself was locked up. So you were able to reopen at the end of June. So prior to that, uh, tell us about how you talked with your staff of when you weren't able to have visitors come in and how did you shift to uh, the digital world, so to speak, uh, to stay engaged? You know, it happened very, very quickly in terms of just as a staff beginning to work digitally. It was not something um, we have a small staff, a close staff. We're really used to all being in the same place together, um, working really collaboratively. And so suddenly needing to use Zoom, a platform that we had never used before um, on, you know, that the that first, maybe March 15th, um, was, a, was a kind of shock to the system. But everyone, you know, it, it took a little, little practice, but we got really used to it. And I think we're able to translate that great kind of collaborative working relationship we have as a staff to a digital platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and similarly, you know, I mean, obviously, especially in those early days, we were all dealing with huge amounts of anxiety, um, as everyone in the country was and probably continues to deal with. Um, we were, you know, as, as we kind of worked through that, able to start thinking, how do we approach all of the things that we want to do programmatically and do them a bit sideways or think about them differently? Um, if, you know, we, if we kind of understand what the mission is of the institution and we understand the germ of what it is that we want to accomplish. Um, how do we use technology and all of these other tools at our disposal to continue the work that we want to achieve? You know, one of those things, we use technology a lot, but we also try to think about how to not use technology. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that I kind of want to throw my computer out the window <laughs> after a long day of Zoom meetings. And so we also, we, we, we realize that there are things that the museum can do and does do really uniquely that don't rely on technology. So we kept all of the work on view in our sculpture garden, Mm. um, which had been intended to be deinstalled in um, the spring. We extended all of those loans so we could still welcome our audience to see works um, by three contemporary artists, large scale works that were on view on our campus. 
We commissioned artists to make new work for postcards that we sent out to our audience through the mail. Um, and then we also did a lot of projects on Zoom. You know, one of the great things about learning to work that way as a staff meant that we were also kind of building fluency with digital programming um, that really helped us as we began to do more online over the course of the spring. Mm. And what did you hear from the community um, as you kept the sculpture garden open, as you shifted some of that programming online, Sabelle? Well, I think it's less maybe what we heard and more of what we saw. Um, I live about a mile away from the museum and and we slowly, many of us in in small ways began spending more time in our offices or in the museum itself, even if it's just for 20 minutes to pick something up. And I would say we all were just incredibly struck by how many people we saw on our campus. Um, and that was really a thrill. We had a really large scale work by an artist named Radcliffe Bailey that was on, um, had been installed on Main Street. Ridgefield is a great town for walking. Um, and we would see people constantly going in and out of this really large um, work that has is a sound piece. So it invited visitors to step inside of the sculpture to hear a sonic um, piece that was composed by the artist. Um, and then we also just were seeing people constantly walking behind the museum to see a, a, an incredibly large uh, sculpture of a deer by an artist named Tony Tassett. Um, so I would say it was really less about what we were hearing, but more about what we were seeing in that was just that people, I think, were really, really looking for ways to get outside of their homes, to have, you know, real experiences with other people, maybe in their family, with works of art. Um, and so we were just so thrilled to see a really steady stream of people coming to take advantage of that. Mm. You're hearing on Zoom today here on Where We Live, Sabelle Malone, director of the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut, as we learn about how this museum uh, had to shift uh, during the pandemic. Um, before I, I talk more about um, you know, the impact financially on a museum when you're not able to have visitors come in, uh, you have some really interesting exhibitions just opening, including Frank Stella's Stars. Can you talk about that? Yes. So that's actually, this has been such a huge thrill, especially given what, you know, we've been, we've been through for the last about seven months. We, we just opened two new exhibitions. Um, one of which is Frank Stella's Stars Survey. And this was supposed to open in May and of course had to be delayed um, because of the huge amount of uncertainty about when we would be able to reopen. Um, and so it's, it's, it's an, it's an incredibly ambitious exhibition under any circumstances. And the fact that we have pulled it off under um, circumstances that are far less than ideal has been just extraordinary. Um, Stella is an artist who's had a very long relationship with the Aldrich. He, the first work of his in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art was purchased by our founder, Larry Aldrich. And he's been in, I believe, 14 exhibitions at the museum since we were founded in 1964. Um, so the, the chance to dedicate an entire exhibition to his work was really exciting for us. And the, the show is a really focused survey of his work um, that extends from his early two-dimensional prints and drawings all the way up to incredibly large scale sculpture that he's making today. And it really looks, draws a through line between those early works and the works that he continues to be engaged with that all, um, that all return to the star form. Um, and of course it goes without um, 
it probably doesn't need this saying, but his last name is Star as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a really wonderful way to take our audience through his career and through um, through his incredible um, incredible body of work and do it using this looking at it through this one mm-hmm. um, this one lens of a of a singular form that's never really mm-hmm. that's never really been explored. And Sabelle, before I, I talk to you about another current exhibition, y- your museum did lose about three months of attendance. So um, how yeah. did you weather that? Well, you know, it was. It was obviously incredibly difficult financially. Um, you know, when you we as a, as a museum, we don't generate you know a huge amount of income from admissions, but um, we do generate some, and it is also kind of the lifeblood of who we are and what we do. Um, and so that was that certainly was a challenge. Um, so losing both you know that energy and enthusiasm but certainly losing the the financial support um and then of course fundraising in this environment has been incredibly challenging um the museum really relies on philanthropy both from individuals and and institutions um and so this has been a difficult moment the the way though that we have weathered that is um like many of our peer organizations, we were really lucky to be able to secure funding through the Paycheck Protection Program, um, which enabled us to keep our staff um, employed during the, this huge amount of uncertainty. Um, our board of trustees have also been really extraordinary and kind of stepped up to the plate to help the museum at this time that we need it really the most. Um, and we've also been really, really pleased to see the support that we've received from new friends. It's been, um, we did an appeal this spring really asking, you know, kind of asking our community and communities of people that we didn't even yet know um, to make gifts to support the museum in the hopes that um, we could generate some meaningful support. And we did, and we got a lot of gifts from people that had never before given to the to the museum. So that was really fantastic. And both was, um, of course, meaningfully fina- meaningful financially, but also was a great, um, I think, you know, show of support, um, not just financially, and a time that we really needed it. Mm-hmm. Did you have to let go of any staff or were you able to keep everyone, Sabelle? So we did furlough our front of house staff um, for a very brief period of time when we close the museum, we of course have educators and people um, that work um, in public facing roles. And so when we closed the museum, they were furloughed temporarily. And then we were very quickly able to bring them all back on staff and have maintained our headcount um, otherwise throughout. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm talking to Sabelle Malone, who is the director of the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut, here on where we live. Uh, Sabelle, we wanted to ask you about another exhibition. Um, I believe it's by the artist Rudy Shepard. Could you tell us briefly about him and this series? Sure. So another um, project that we have on view right now is called Somebody's Child by Rudy Shepard. Um, you know, so Obviously, this this year, the museum, we have been dealing with the effects of the pandemic, but also, you know, um, we have felt very, very deeply um, the need to address the movement for Black lives and the kind of great amount of um, social change that we see people um demanding and you know so while of course we were all working remotely and having these conversations via zoom after the killing of george floyd um everyone on our staff and board really became engaged in a much 
much more active conversation about what the museum, how the museum can participate meaningfully in this work in, a lo in the long term. Um, and then also what some immediate things we might be able to do to um, to bring attention and um, bring attention and give our audience um, a way to think and participate in this in this moment. Um, obviously, we are a museum. And so I think the most important way that we can one of the most important ways that we can um, show kind of um, demonstrate our values is by what we put on our walls. So in having these conversations, um, my colleague, Amy Smith Stewart, who is the museum senior curator proposed that we show this series of Rudy's work. Um, Rudy has been in several other exhibitions at the museum and because of the way that Amy and our other colleague Richard work with artists, they are constantly in artist studios and looking at what they are um, working on, both for what we might be showing and then also to kind of file away for the future. And so Amy had spent time with Rudy in the studio. We'd never exhibited this body of work, but she knew very much, um, she knew about um, it as a part of his practice and, and one that's been kind of long going. And she presented that this, she presented to us that this would be a meaningful um, thing for us to have on view. And, and um, it's a really kind of expansive project that really aims to bring humanity um, and a kind of personal, um, a, a real sense of the, um, a, a real ability to connect personally with these individuals whose names we are often reading in the news and often about people who we are interacting with in, in their lives. We've stepped in in the worst moment, the, you know, the most um, extraordinarily tragic thing that has happened to them. And so I understand um, some of these are watercolor portraits of people like George Floyd, Rihanna Taylor, and others. Uh, Sabel, we actually have a clip of artist Rudy Shepard describing his ongoing oh, portrait great. series. Again, uh, somebody's child on view at the Aldridge, I believe, through the end of November. Let's hear from Rudy. The group of work that you see in front of you is focused on people of color that have been killed by the police, which is you know a big topic right now, and people are protesting. And it's definitely something that's been there all along for this 13 years I've been working on this project. A thread that's run through it and uh, something I've been paying attention to and wondering why people aren't making a bigger uh, stink about it. Uh, so I'm happy to present this work now and, and have this sort of dovetail with the movement in the streets. All along, it's been about looking at these people, not just as um, connected to a story that's all of a sudden important for a day, but them as human beings. So each of these people that I make paintings of, I do a deep investigation into their life and find out who they were before this incident happened to them, before they were killed by the police. You know, who were they? You know, are they a father? Are they a son? Are they a brother? Um, do they have children? Um, what were they doing in the world before this moment happened? You know, um, for my own sense of satisfaction, but also to represent that to uh, people that may just know the headline and not know anything about these people, um, because I think it um, engenders us to have empathy for these people and to think a little bit more deeply about what it, what it means, like what's happening and and how egregious these these things are. Mm -hmm. Sabella, Ridgefield, Connecticut is an overwhelmingly uh, white town, affluent town. What has been the response to Rudy Shepard's Somebody's Child? Well, I think, first of all, kind of describing demographically the community that we're in is probably exactly why we wanted to make sure that we were devoting 
significant and meaningful space to this. Um, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, positive is maybe not the right term because of course I would say everyone that engages this work find it, finds it to be incredibly moving and somber. You know, this is, this is, um, this is a very both, you know, um, beautiful celebration of these individuals, but of course the, the reason for their um, being exhibited is, is, is a great tragedy. Um, but we've been thrilled actually by how welcome our visitors have been to this work, how much they have wanted to engage with it. We have done a number of um, programs in conjunction with it and we have some coming up. We've, we've published a poster um, with Rudy that highlight three of the portraits that we've had people buying in our shop and the proceeds of the, all of the proceeds from the poster benefit color of change. So, you know, and certainly our visitors come from Ridgefield, but they really come from all over. Um, but it, it's been, it's been wonderful to see just how I think ready our audience is to, to, to wrestle with this. Um, and to do it with in the way that the museum always tries to um, bring ideas to light, which is, of course, through the extraordinary work of artists that are working around us. Mm. And I understand there's an online art talk by artist Rudy Shepard tonight, October 1st. Is it too late for people uh, to register if they wanted to hear Rudy Shepard, Sabelle? Um, I, I hope my colleagues at the library don't kill me, but I think it should probably still be fine. So I hope people <laughs> will um, will take a, a moment and tune in, in with us. Rudy is an incredibly thoughtful, and you could just you know hear him speaking just now, um, artist who, again, has been engaged with this work over a very long time. So hearing, I know for all of us, we've had the chance to spend a lot of time with him already, and I'm sure it will be a real, um, a real wonderful conversation for those that are able to join us tonight. Well, Sabel Malone, again, Malone, director of the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Thank you for joining us and telling us about uh, your museum and the exhibitions that you have. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we talk about a unique art trail in the town of Simsbury. Now, what public art makes an impact on you? You can join our converse- conversation, share a comment on our Facebook page, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, if you've driven in the town of Simsbury over the last few months, you might have done a double take at the people you've seen around town, especially along Hop Meadow Street. It's a busy road lined with businesses. They're actually life-size bronze sculptures, 37 to be exact, that capture your attention. To tell us more, joining us now by phone is Morgan Hilliard, Executive Director of the Simsbury Chamber of Commerce, which organized this art trail. Morgan, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So this was the first time I realized that these particular sculptures have been in Simsbury before. This is the first time I've noticed them. And I really did do a double take, which probably was not a good thing because I was driving at the time. Uh, (laughs) Tell us about uh, these sculptures and uh, who, who created them. Sure. So the artist is Seward Johnson. And this is the second time that Simsbury has presented an exhibit of his sculptures. And the first presentation was in 2018. And we decided to bring them back because it was an incredibly successful exhibit in 2018. 
and we wanted to bring them back in part to celebrate Simsbury's 350th anniversary. So we have 37 sculptures in town. They're distributed all over the place, and the location that they're placed at is based on businesses who have chosen that particular sculpture and sponsored them for the, for the exhibit. So it's, it's really interesting to see what the businesses have chosen. And in many situations, they picked the sculpture for a specific reason, whether it's related to the business or the owner of the business connected with the sculpture on a significant level. So one of the bronze sculptures that is uh, of Marilyn Monroe, and that's on the corner near uh, Metro Beast. And so I'm curious about that story, Morgan. <laughs> who, who decided sure. that, that sculpture to be there? Yep, so Forever Marilyn is one of the most famous sculptures by Seward Johnson. He has three series of uh, sculptures that he's um, created. The first is Celebrating the Familiar, and the majority of our sculptures are from that series, and I, I can explain those in a little bit. But Marilyn Monroe is um, from the Icons Revisited series. So it's a really interesting series because he basically takes icons from American history and creates a sculpture. And the entire purpose of it is to make us think about this icon and how the meaning of that particular historical figure has changed over time. So that was chosen because it's a beautiful sculpture. It's one of the most intricate. And a, a photo of the sculpture really does not do it justice. To get up and close to Forever Marilyn is absolutely remarkable. The detail of her, you know, hair, her, you know, the the shine of her earrings, her dress. It's really amazing that he was able to produce this. Tell us more about Mr. Johnson. So Seward Johnson was born in New Jersey, and I, academically he wasn't very you know, excited. He didn't know what career he wanted, and he was introduced to art by his second wife. So his early career was painting, but he was um, not able to produce the type of art that really fulfilled him through paint. So that's when he began experimenting with sculpture. And at this point, there are over 450 hyper-realistic bronze sculptures that he's created. Mm. So tell us about uh, the reaction. Uh, this is, again, celebrating, as you mentioned, Simsbury's uh, 350th uh, birthday. But in terms of the reaction from not only residents, but are you getting a lot of visitors uh, from out of town? Absolutely. So, again, as I mentioned, 2018 was the first time this exhibit was held, and it was extremely successful. This year, we've had over 30,000 visitors to the area which, as you can imagine, under normal circumstances would be, you know, huge for the local economy. But under the current um, conditions with COVID and businesses being shut down and people not leaving their homes for, you know, quite some time, it has been um, a really remarkable effect on the local economy. It's motivated people to go ahead and get out of their house and experience this beautiful art exhibit with friends and family, which again are located in front of local businesses. So it's, it's drawn people from all over to explore the town of Simsbury and all that we have to offer. And I, as I had mentioned before, the majority of the sculptures are from the Celebrating the Familiar series. So the entire point of that series is Seward Johnson freezes a moment in time, just a mundane moment of our daily lives, whether it's you know eating an ice cream or reading a newspaper, and it's something that we normally wouldn't pay any attention to. But he froze this moment in with the intention for us to take a deeper look and find the simple joys in life. 
And again, under the, the current circumstances, it's even more significant than originally intended because we don't have as many of those normal moments as we used to, and we don't have as many of those interactions as we used to. So it's really been amazing to see the sculptures, and there's been a sense of nostalgia related to it. If you're listening now, you can share on Facebook or on Twitter at Where We Live if you've seen these sculptures along uh, Simsbury, uh, again, the art trail. We'd love to hear which one is your favorite. I know I'm drawn to the one of a veteran hugging a little girl. I believe that's the coming home Mm -hmm. sculpture. And also the photo shoot of a family taking a photo, and again, in front of a a storefront. And you really do think it's an actual family until you do a double take, uh, Morgan. What are your favorites? I would have to agree with you. So Vincent Funeral Home had chosen Coming Home, which is of a soldier reuniting with his daughter. And it's absolutely amazing. The emotion he was able to capture, the detail in the sculptures, it's um, so incredibly moving to witness that moment in time. I would say my personal favorite is probably A Day Off, which is on old Drake Hill Flower Bridge in Simsbury. And the sculpture of a father fishing with his son. So another interaction between um, two sculptures, basically two people highlighted. And again, the intricacy is amazing, but also the expression. So you can really see how excited this little boy is to be fishing and, you know, his proud father next to him. And I think we can all relate to having a connection with a friend or family member, you know, in terms of learning something and really valuing that moment in time. And appropriately, it was, you know, set on a bridge. So it fits in perfectly with the scenery. Well, the good news is this art trail for our listeners has been extended, I believe, a few more days, Morgan. Tell us about uh, the closing ceremony. It's a great time to drive out to Simsbury. It's a beautiful time of year uh, to to see the foliage and, and check out this art trail. Absolutely. It's been so popular. So we did decide to extend it a little bit longer. So the last day that the sculptures will be available to be seen at their current location is Monday, October 5th. And then Tuesday, October 6th, we will be having our art trail closing ceremony over at the Simsbury Meadows Performing Arts Center. So this event will be from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. We are limited to 100 guests, so we, we need to make sure that we close registration at that time. And there will be beer, wine. We have Fitzgerald's Foods catering the event. Um, We'll be adhering to all COVID rules and regulations, social distancing, but we'll have about half a dozen sculptures on site. So they'll be positioned around the Performing Arts Center, again, blending in with the scenery um, as they were intended to be shown. And it's just going to be a fantastic time to, to see several sculptures on one location up close and personal and really have that experience together. Well, Morgan Hilliard, again, the executive director of the Simsbury Chamber of Commerce, which organized this art trail. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad to learn the backstory of these amazing sculptures, 37 of them, again, uh, that people can see uh, along Hot Meadow Street and other places in Simsbury. Morgan, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. And again, you can listen to Where We Live on your favorite podcast app.